welcome to the Sanction Space podcast. I am Justine Walker, Head of Global Sanctions and Risk at ACAMS. This new series brings you the stories behind sanctions. What are the trends? Who are the key people? And what can we learn from the past to shape future thinking? Joining me today is Ellie Garamaya, a British-Iranian analyst, commentator and advisor based in London since 2013. Ellie is Deputy Head of the Middle East and North Africa program at the European Council on Foreign Relations. She specializes in European foreign policy, the nuclear Middle East dossiers and sanctions. Ellie, it's a pleasure to have you join us today. Great to be with you. Thank you, Justine. So Ellie, you are at the very center of helping shape Europe's response to some of the most sensitive foreign policy issues faced today. In your daily work, how do you bring together global stakeholders and build trust across those with really diverse views? I mean, there must be so much that goes on behind the scenes in your day-to-day role. Yeah, well, I mean, I've been in this track of track two and diplomacy work for about seven to eight years now. And I think that the number one factor is building trust with individuals on a one-on-one level and trying to leverage that trust that people have in you to bring very different stakeholders together. People who that wouldn't normally find themselves in the same meeting or the same dinners and trying to push these folks to just meet, talk, build confidence over years and find that there are areas where there is a mutual interest to develop solutions to major problems that are facing their countries. So particularly in the Middle East region, which is my bread and butter area of work, there's just been this explosion of conflicts over the last 10 years, particularly different hotspots from Syria to the rise of ISIS to what's happening now in Yemen. And so there's a lot of different viewpoints at play about how these conflicts should be solved. So one track of my work is trying to bring different strands of people in different societies together, whether that's civil society or senior government officials, to look at the same problem from different angles and hopefully try and find some creative solutions out, even if that means some very baby steps towards ceasefire of conflicts or just opening dialogue on soft issues between countries. Then another track of my work over the years and this is where the nuclear deal comes into it, the 2015 agreement, was trying to bring stakeholders from the United States and Iran together, two countries that have been at odds for over four decades now, and trying to use this issue, this big problem of Iran's nuclear program, as the West saw it and and continues to see it, to try and find a solution that accommodated both sides. And at the time... A lot of us, whether it was scientists who were working on this, diplomats, folks in the think tank community like myself, and lawyers, were trying to find a win-win solution whereby both Iran and the West could walk away with a face-saving win that they could sell back at home. And I think one of the things that you learn a lot in conflict resolution is a lot of these stakeholders need to be able to take a win back home with them, to have some ammunition to get internal buy-in from various different constituencies that they are answerable to. So in the U.S. case, for example, during the Obama administration, there was a lot of fierce 
backlash inside the U.S. Congress, special interest groups, U.S. partners in the Middle East weren't so happy with the fact that diplomacy was being had with Iran. And then in Iran, there was a lot of internal pushback against the government's negotiations with the United States, which has always been viewed in ways that it was an enemy of the state. So there was a lot of hard work behind the scenes to build confidence, not just at the level of people who were doing the negotiations, but also in the public debate, in the media. And that was one area of work which I was very much engaged with and and continue to be involved with. And I, I guess I'd just end by saying, you know, a lot of my work is about trying to create a safe space and an informal platform for parties that are at odds with one another to actually talk and try and hash out solutions. It's really fascinating, your role, and so central. But can I just ask you, you referred to the track to diplomacy, and this may be a familiar concept to some people who are listening, but for others it isn't. Can you just explain the difference between track one and track two for our listeners? Sure. I mean, ideally, you want to get a conflict to be resolved at a track one level, which means a government to a government. And that's where, you know, that's where the deals are made, uh, guarantees are provided. Any work that builds up to that is trying to get two government sides to come together with solutions. Now, in areas where two governments or two parties are not talking to each other or not at least formally, what you try and do is create a more private channel of talks, which we call track two, which are basically experts and analysts, in some cases, even business stakeholders, economists that are involved with an issue, and bring them together to try and find some solutions that we can then propose to governments to consider. And then the kind of middle of those two is something called the track 1.5, which is something that I'm engaged with a lot, which is when you bring both experts and economists or, or business people plus the government folks all together in one room. And that's a kind of informal setting where government officials can kind of let their hair down, take their hats off and have a more informal conversation without being tied to formal government positions. And those have been the most interesting to me where it's the government officials that bring in the reality of the politics at play in their respective capitals, but also it's the analysts and the experts that provide them with some creative channels that they may not have considered in their very busy, hectic government offices when they're trying to deal with 20 different priorities. So that's the type of work where I think you can find some very interesting breakthroughs. Not always, but, you know, sometimes actually end up feeding up the chain at the very highest level and are considered as possible solutions to major problems. And it is such an interesting sort of element within this conflict resolution. I mean, I've been really lucky to, or very privileged, I would even describe it as being involved in some track two discussions and even some 1.5. And it is exactly as you say, that that process is just so critical to this. You're covering such a big brief. You know, you've got the Middle East, you've got North Africa, you know, you've talked about some of the challenges faced across the region around conflict, sectarian tension, economic crisis, political unrest. When you're looking at these conflicts and these challenges, are they completely interrelated or do you approach this on a country-level, topic-specific aspect? How do you set your parameters of what you're going to explore and the types of solutions you come up with? 
Yeah, well, I would caveat this by saying that unfortunately, the Middle East and North Africa region just keeps getting more complicated and complex by the month, really. Just when you think you've managed to um, calm one situation, another flashpoint kind of flares up. And the region is becoming more and more integrated. So one area of conflict, which you thought was neatly contained, ends up spilling over into something else. So, I mean, a very small example for now is in the Middle East, we've, for example, been seeing new competition arise between Turkey and some of the Gulf Arab actors like the United Arab Emirates in places like Syria, for example. But now that's spilled over to a conflict much further away in Libya, where they're both there backing different actors. So there is a major area of my work where I get together with my colleagues in my organization And we think about the thematic issues that are affecting the region and try and see where there might be trade-offs that can be made by countries in one theater versus another. But most of my work personally is focused on understanding a specific country. And here for me, that is Iran. My colleagues cover lots of other countries in the MENA region. And I think Why that's important is because we try and pick people who know the language, who know the people on the ground, who have an understanding of the context, and who who can really present a realistic interpretation of what may be happening inside of the country's political elite and political establishment, as well as the ground level, grassroots level. And I always actually hesitate to describe myself as an expert on Iran, because I think there are so many deep issues, complicated issues. I actually prefer to just say that I'm an analyst who's building my expertise, because I think, you know, even people who've been in the heart of politics in that country for decades end up being surprised by how events turn out. You know, essentially, my work is both on a very country-specific analysis level, and I've been working very, very intensely on the nuclear issue and nuclear diplomacy, but also these regional actors are becoming increasingly involved in the affairs of one another, near to their borders and further away. And so I have to then come together with my colleagues who work on those other countries to try and understand the dynamics of on the ground and present a much more comprehensive image of what a solution to these tensions that we're seeing in in the region could look like. So Ellie, you're very modest. I think to most of us, we would refer to you as as really one of the experts in this area. But I'm just sort of even demonstrating this. You know, in 2015, after more than a decade of negotiations, there was just huge excitement across world powers and Iran on reaching a nuclear deal. This was just viewed as such a key achievement. You were actively involved in the lead up to the nuclear deal. What did that feel like? Did it feel like you were part of history when actually an agreement was reached? You know, it really was such a rare moment of hope, I think, for people working, particularly on Iran, I would say, where you had so many years of hostility and standoff and heated rhetoric and the threat of military intervention, you know, shadowing over the country, to then come to a situation for, you know, for two years, there was such an intensive negotiation process going on between Iran and the West in particular, 
And, you know, I was regularly attending different rounds of negotiations in Vienna or in Switzerland, normally in wonderfully located places, I should say. And, you know, you would, you would sit there in a hotel lobby for days and days, and you got to know every journalist that was working on covering the issue. You got to know every official who was working on the negotiation. You would have you know, side coffee conversations with people, understand the dynamics of the negotiations, what was going right, what was going wrong. You try and feed in where you could some humble solutions to some of the really incredible difficult issues that the negotiators were dealing with. And you got to build confidence with folks on the negotiating team from different countries where they came to know you even after the negotiations and come to you for exchange of views on how they could implement that deal and, and bolster it afterwards. And you know, this came at a time, it was quite a terrible time in the region. If you remember, in, in the run-up to the 2015 agreement, you had this major surge of ISIS in Iraq and, and in Syria. You had both the Western coalition and Iran fighting this common enemy in ISIS inside Iraq. You also had, you know, a very terrible war that was dividing the international community with respect to Syria. And the Iran nuclear deal was one very rare silver lining instance of these parties, these world powers coming together on a common issue, finding a very difficult diplomatic way out of this nuclear standoff with Iran. And, you know, I remember when the deal was signed, the sense of a huge achievement for all the people who were on the podium and announcing that deal. And just thinking, wow, this just sets a rare example that all these countries who are at conflict with one another can actually come to agree on something that's very, very important. And then on the ground in Iran, you saw when the deal was announced, you know, people poured onto the streets. There were street parties, music, dancing, honking of cars into early hours of the morning. And there was just this huge buildup of hope about where the country could go once the U.S. and international sanctions were lifted. Now, remember, this is a country of majority of people are under 40 now, young, tech savvy. They want to be connected to the world. And so they saw this as really a turn of a chapter in their history. And I think that hope that came immediately after the deal the degree and gravity of that made it so much harder for everybody to accept when the Trump administration decided to leave the deal and return all of the sanctions that were there previously. And that fall, you know, from having the sanctions switched off and lifted to bring them back again, that fall for this kind of psychology and the economy of Iran was really, really hard, particularly after that major high in 2015. Let's now move forward to 2020. And, you know, and you've referred to the situation with the nuclear deal, and it's a very fragile situation, very much, you know, will the deal survive? And yet again, you're having to think through the very diverse global views that need to be reconciled. Drawing on your experiences in leading up to 2015, how do you bring everybody back to the table or even keep them at the table? What is the way forward there? So everybody at the moment is just trying to hold positions 
until the outcome of the US elections in November are clear, because that will have, in my view, quite a critical impact on whether we can keep this nuclear deal ticking along, first and foremost, because I think if we are dealing with the second Trump administration, which has been so committed to this maximum pressure policy and economic sanctions on Iran, has described this nuclear deal as a disastrous deal for so many years, despite the rest of the world disagreeing. So if we're dealing with the second Trump administration, I unfortunately don't think that we're able to keep the current parties of the nuclear deal at the table as it stands in this current formula. And I think we need to, unfortunately, step away from the JCPOA, the nuclear agreement, and think about a new formula for how we deal with four more years of Trump, four more years of sanctions, and how we can find perhaps some sort of a formula which brings in a Trump administration to some sort of a transactional diplomacy with Iran. So thinking this through, and from a point of view, it doesn't really, if you think about it, even if it's a, depending on whether it's a Trump or a Biden administration, one of the things we do know is since 2015, you know, many of the US and EU officials, virtually in fact all of them, have now moved on. You know, you're dealing with a new set of officials. If you're working with those officials, what advice would you give them? They're picking up this brief, they're looking at the international negotiations, whether it's a new deal, whether it's a continuation of the current deal. I mean, just getting everybody back to the table and speaking again, what advice would you give them? Yeah, it's an excellent point. And, you know, I, in the EU system, in the European system, I only know one official that was negotiating the 2015 agreement that's still around, and that's the EU Secretary General, Helga Schmidt. Everyone else in the European system has changed, and that means that they have lost a lot of the institutional memory of what it took to get to that agreement. Interestingly, obviously, on the Iranian side, on the Russian side, the same people are at play. The US side, it has has obviously had a major U-turn. But I think, you know, some of the lessons drawn from that experience, I think one major thing that is absolutely necessary for anyone, I think, coming into negotiations is to have a belief that a breakthrough, a diplomatic breakthrough is possible regardless of how major the challenges ahead of you seem, I think that, you know, nobody believed, even when the nuclear talks were happening, nobody believed that eventually we could get to this endpoint. I mean, when I say nobody, I meant a lot of the critics and the media, there was a lot of skeptics out there that particularly Iran would implement the agreement, which we've now seen as history would show it, it was actually the US that decided to walk away from the deal and not Iran. So I do think that having confidence that diplomacy is possible is the major number one issue. And the second issue is, I would say for people who are dealing with Iran, who are dealing with the Middle East, it's really important to get out there, um, meet people and connect with the population as much as possible. Obviously, right now we're in a very difficult circumstance with COVID, but if that is possible, really having a deep understanding of what's going on in the minds of local population and their aspirations. As I said, it's a largely young 
region of the world that doesn't want to be stuck in this perpetual state of conflict that they've seen over the past years. And also trying to get a really good understanding of how political elites that are making up decisions of these countries think. Because we're often stuck in these boxes in in European capitals and in the United States of interpreting what we think opposing actors are going to think and how they're going to move the chess pieces. But actually, once you get to talk to people and understand their perspective on a problem, which is very different to yours, I think that's the only time that you can actually come to resolve these major issues. So very quickly, because I know we are now running out of time, you know, there's so many elements here. You've seen so many things in the sanctions space over the past five, ten years and beyond. Recently, what has been the most surprising aspect? What has stood out most in the sanctions trajectory? I have to admit that how easy it was for the United States to impose its foreign policy through sanctions in the last couple of years under the Trump administration has really been, I think, surprising for me. The gravity and the impact on the business sector and the fact that governments around the world, and I'm not just talking about the Europeans, but even you know major Eastern powers like India and China, they've been caught off guard. There is no checks and balances that can really address when you have this massive clash in, in foreign policy in the way that the US has been able to use its economic coercion across the board. And the big picture for 2021, you know, just to conclude with, what does that look like for you? I mean, obviously we have the US elections, but really, you know, leaving that slightly aside, but what does it look like in the region for 2021? Oh, I'm afraid I'm going to have to come back to the US elections on that. There is so much kind of, everybody is hedging and holding positions and trying to move very carefully at this stage. It's usually like this, I have to say, before US elections, because for so long, US policy has had such major repercussions for the region. You know, we we are now marking almost 20 years of 9-11, and that precedent has had such a major repercussion for conflict and interventions in the Middle East and relationships in the Middle East. So I do think that the outcome of this election will have a major impact on how regional players move the chess pieces, you know, whether that's Turkey and and what it's up to as a NATO ally or Iran and how its nuclear program either escalates or actually rolls back as part of some sort of a diplomatic initiative. And also whether, you know, Gulf countries that are involved in in several conflicts like in Yemen or, or Libya continue to be as engaged as they have been. Unfortunately, with respect to the regional players themselves. I have seen so many missed opportunities over recent years, and and the most recent one being the COVID pandemic, which had such a obvious humanitarian opening for regional players who are at odds with one another to actually sit around the same table, coordinate and discuss, to come together, and, and, and they've missed that opportunity, that I don't see there being major constructive movements on the intra-regional diplomatic front next year, unless there is a major push from world powers, whether that's 
the US or Russia or the Europeans to press and nudge these actors to de-escalate and calm tensions. But I do think that what happens in, in the United States elections is going to be, I think, to some extent, a game changer for how various regional players in the Middle East position themselves next year. Ellie, thank you so much. I think you've just really helped to describe to us the huge complexity within the region and the various dynamics that you work through. It has been so insightful. I really hope listeners have enjoyed this podcast. Please do sign up as we move around the world to really look at the stories behind sanctions. Thank you, Ellie. Thank you, listeners.